Hey everyone. Hi, ah, you are out there. Good, great. Welcome. Welcome to church. Uh, my name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors. I'm one of two pastors at the moment. I've got some exciting news for you though. And that is that uh, not this Tuesday, but next Tuesday, week and a half from now on the 27th of November, uh, there's going to be a church meeting in here Tuesday night, 7.30, and we're going to be voting uh, on the proposal to employ a new pastor. We've uh, found somebody, the elders have gone through a, an interview recruitment process, we've found somebody that we want to bring to the church and recommend. Uh, and so that Tuesday night, if you're a member of the church, formal member, please do come along to that meeting because we're going to need a, a lot of people there to vote. We want the, the vote to accurately reflect the decision of the body. Uh, please do come along. If you're not a formal member, come along anyway. It'll be great because you'll get to hear a bit about, hopefully, God willing, the new person uh, that may come and join us in the new year. Uh, and you get to sort of experience what life in the body here at WBC is like. So Tuesday, 27th of November, put it in your diary. We'll tell you more about it next week. Anyway, that's some admin. Why don't I pray for us? And, uh, and then let's have a think about that passage of Colossians together. Let's pray. Uh, great God, thank you so much for your word. I uh, thank you that you do speak to us through it and that every time we read it, uh, we hear your voice speaking to us. Uh, God, thank you for this letter of Colossians that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. And thank you for all the things that we have seen and learned about your son, the Lord Jesus. Uh, thank you for what a picture we have of him as the one who is supreme over everything, the one who humbled himself and became our saviour and our redeemer. Uh, God, we pray tonight that as we uh, camp out in this passage and as we think about uh, what it says and what it means for us, help us to see Jesus more clearly, we pray. Uh, give us faith, give us a love for him and help us to have obedient lives in response to what we read tonight. We ask for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Uh, I want to start tonight by uh, giving you, uh, doing a little game with you. I want to give you a definition of a word, a word that was added to our dictionary two years ago. 2016, this word was added formally into the English language. And I want to see if you can guess what word this is. Are you with me? Uh, here's the definition. You shout out the word if you think you know it. Ready? Definition is, anxiety that an exciting or interesting event may currently be happening elsewhere, often aroused by posts on social media. FOMO. FOMO is the word. Do you know the word FOMO? Uh, it's an acronym. stands for Fear of Missing Out. And now it's an official word in the English language. FOMO. Do you know FOMO? Do you have FOMO? It's that kind of low-level and anxious feeling that maybe there is something good out there that you're missing out on and you should really go and take part in it. You know FOMO. Uh, FOMO, personally, I find hits me the hardest on those nights when I'm in my pajamas by 7.30 and I'm just about to rest, set in for a nice night on the couch and FOMO, out of nowhere, tells me, Mark, your friends are probably out there doing something much more exciting and much more mature than you sitting on the couch in your pajamas at 7.30. That's my experience of FOMO. How about you? Have you had FOMO? It's not a new experience. FOMO has been around for as long as people have been around. We just didn't have a word for it like this. Uh, there, there are some stories you can read uh, back from the days of ancient Rome where there was a, a famous uh, statesman, a politician, a guy named Cicero, maybe you heard of him, uh, and whenever he had to leave the capital, leave Rome, he, he had chronic FOMO. He was worried about what he was going to miss out on back in Rome. And so he devised this whole system where his friends and his colleagues would send him letters daily of all the stuff that was going on in Rome that he was missing out on. And it wasn't just the political stuff that you know, he needed to know for his job. It was all the juicy gossip and the things that were happening in people's lives. He needed to know that stuff. He had chronic FOMO. FOMO is not a new experience, is it? 
but I think it's probably been heightened a little bit in recent years with you know, how prevalent social media is now because we have the ability to see what all of our friends are doing at any given moment and to feel jealous and to feel like we're missing out on something fun out there. And personally, I reckon that FOMO is a problem in the Christian life too. I reckon you can feel FOMO as a Christian, feel like maybe there is some version of the Christian life, some aspect of the Christian life that I'm missing out on. Have you ever felt like that? I wonder, have you ever kind of thought these these kinds of thoughts? My friends who go to that church down the road, they just seem to be having such a better time in worship than us. They're so much more ecstatic in their worship. I wonder if they're doing something that we're not doing. Hmm. I wonder if you've ever had the kind of thought that like being a disciple of Jesus at the moment, trying to follow Jesus, it's hard. Like, I don't always wake up and think, man, I'm excited about this. I wonder, should it be like that? Some people seem to be really keen about following Jesus. Am I doing this wrong? You ever had those kind of thoughts? You ever had the kind of thought of, like, I've been praying for this thing in my life over and over and over, and God does not seem to be dealing with it. He's not answering my prayer. Am I praying wrong? Should I be doing this some other way to kind of get God to act on my behalf? Am I missing out on something because of what I'm doing or not doing here? You ever had those kind of thoughts? They're they're, they're kind of a spiritual FOMO. And I reckon that many Christians feel things like that, which makes them wonder, well, maybe there is something out there that I I should go searching for, some experience, some knowledge, something that I can add into my Christian life to, to sort of get what's lacking. That's the kind of thinking. Like maybe there is a version of the Christian life out there that's more fulfilling and more dramatic and more fruitful. Well, as, as we've been reading through the letter of Colossians uh, for the last few weeks, we've realized that Colossians is kind of like a warning letter. It's a letter written to a church that were being swamped with these kind of religious salesmen who were showing up in Colossae and were preying on people's spiritual FOMO, saying, yeah, you are missing out on something and I can provide it for you. And what the Apostle Paul has been doing over the last few weeks is he's been rebutting that argument. He's been demonstrating to them, no, you don't need to buy what the religious salesmen are trying to sell you. And, and tonight, as we, as we conclude chapter 2, we're coming really to the, the apex of that argument. It's the point where Paul is going to sort of once and for all get rid of any claims, any ideas that you might be missing out on something as a Christian. And the way that Paul is going to do that is he's going to kind of shine the light a light of truth on three dangers that Christians face, three traps that Christians might fall into when it comes to thinking, maybe I am missing out on something. Uh, And these these three kind of dangers we're going to see in this passage tonight, I think that they are dangers that we can fall into as well, each one of us in in some way, shape or form. Now, as we look through these, these dangers, these traps in this passage, there's some overlap between the three of them. You'll see that as we go through. But let's, let's start looking through the passage and let's see what do we need to be careful of? What are the dangers Paul does not want us to fall into? So let's start with verse 16, beginning of the passage. The first thing Paul wants us to see is that there is a danger of lingering in the shadows as a Christian. Danger of lingering in the shadows. See what Paul says there in verse 16. He says, uh, let no one judge you by, and then he sort of lists the package deal of things you're not to be judged by, and it's food and drink, festivals, new moons, 
and Sabbaths. And if you read that list as it was read out by Tamara a minute ago, and you thought, man, that sounds like paganism. Oh, what are those dirty pagans up to? You'd be wrong. That's not paganism. That is a very Old Testament list of ceremonies that has very deliberately captured up and summarized what Old Testament religious practices were like. Uh, and I wonder if you feel the draw of them. Does that appeal to you, that list of activities there? I want you to imagine that there is a, there's a Colossian Christian, new Christian maybe, just heard the gospel, and they're hungry for more of God. They want a, a deeper, richer, fuller experience of God. And along comes one of their friends, and their friend opens up their calendar, and man, their calendar is packed with religious activities and fasts and ceremonies and feasts that they have to take part in. And that friend with the full calendar says to the new Christian, hey, you should really come take part in all of these, these extra things here in my calendar. If you don't take part in them, if your calendar is clear, well, maybe you're not a real Christian. Maybe you're missing out on something. They're, they're kind of judging, like, you need this stuff. You, you kind of get the picture? Well, look what Paul says in verse 17, what Paul thinks of that. He says, these things are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Right? Paul's saying the Old Testament religion, all those ceremonies and whatnot, those things were great. They were fantastic. They were God-given. They were, they were good for a time, but they were only for a time. They were only ever designed to point forward to something. They were like a shadow that was supposed to point you to the substance, the reality, the reality that was to come, the reality that is Christ. And Paul seems to be saying Christ is everything that those ceremonies were pointing forward to which I think makes the appeal of those ceremonies diminish quite a lot, doesn't it? Why would you want them when you've got the reality in Christ? Do you understand the comparison going on here? I want you to imagine uh, that there are two, two young boys. Uh, young boys love pets. That's just a fact of life. Uh, and these two young boys deal with their, their desire to have pets in very different ways. Uh, the first young boy, what he does is he goes to his cupboard and he gets a torch and he shines the torch against the wall and he makes animal-shaped Puppet, you know, shadow puppets with his hands and he makes the rabbit, he makes the bird and he makes the dog. I don't really know how to do that one. But he's enjoying it. He gets to experience all the animals that he could want right there on the wall in shadow format. Great, good for him. Second boy, however, well, his family moved to a farm and now he's living on a farm and he's got access to every kind of animal, every kind of pet that he could ever want. There are pigs and chickens and dogs and puppies and cats and kittens and Everything else that he could ever want. Everything to play with and to cuddle and to raise. Do you realize how sad it would be for that second boy to decide, no, actually, I'm not interested in this. I'd rather go back inside and play with the shadows. It'd be crazy to do that, wouldn't it? When you've got everything in reality and you choose to go back to that cheap imitation of it. But that's what's going on here in Colossae. That's the warning Paul is making here. Don't get pulled back to something that is not as substantial as the real deal. But I reckon, I reckon that's something that we do get pulled back by, that we see the appeal of the shadow. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about those kinds of religions that are a lot more formal than our religion the kinds of religions that have a lot more ceremonies and traditions and rules, things that you've got to do. Do you know those kinds of religions? Uh, there has been a trend. You may not know this. There's been a trend in recent years, and some uh, Christian writers are starting to notice this and write about it, uh, of Protestant Christians, Christians in churches like ours, leaving Protestant churches and going back to Catholicism. 
That's happening in a, a not insignificant way. And you might be sitting there and thinking, why would anybody want to do that? Why would you want to go back to Catholicism? I thought, you know, Protestant Reformation, we've sort of come back to what church is supposed to be. Well, I think part of the reason why people do that is because the appeal of a religion that has a lot more ceremonies, a lot more formality, a lot more tradition to it, that's a real pull. Do you understand that? Catholic worship, well, their priests get properly dressed up. They look like real religious people, don't they? Catholic worship, well, they will read and pray prayers that have been written by saints hundreds of years ago. That's weighty stuff, right? Catholic worship, there'll be candles and incense and statues and pictures and, and mystery in Catholic worship. And that's appealing. And I think that whole kind of package deal of religious ceremony, it makes churches like ours, it makes what we are doing here tonight, sitting in pews like this, in a building like this, it makes it look very insubstantial, doesn't it? You compare this tonight with a Catholic church service. Very insubstantial. This is, this is far too plain to be the real deal, isn't it? I mean, our building isn't even heritage listed. It can't be that good, can it? Our pastors barely even wear jeans, let alone, you know, religious frocks. We don't even know the meaning of the word liturgy. It's not in our, in our vocabulary. Do you feel the pull towards that kind of a religion? A religion with ceremonies and traditions and history? I feel that pull sometimes. I'll admit that. I understand the appeal of it. But you see what Paul says here in Colossians 2? He says that that kind of a religion, a religion which is just laden with all of those things... It's just a shadow. It was designed to point to the reality that is Christ, Christ himself. You know what Paul said earlier in chapter 2? He said that the full, we have the fullness of Christ. If we have Christ, we have fullness. And so actually, all of those ceremonies, all of those fasts, all of those traditions, we don't need those things to be substantial we have substance because we have Christ. And our simple, Christ-centered religion is enough. So we mustn't let anyone judge us. We mustn't let anyone look down on us. We mustn't feel inferior because of what we eat or drink or don't eat or don't drink, what ceremonies we do or don't practice. We mustn't fall into the trap of lingering in the shadows because those shadows were designed to point us to Christ. He's the real deal. Don't linger in the shadows. That's the first danger Paul is warning us about here. Second danger from verse 18 is the danger, I think, of looking for an upgrade. Looking for an upgrade. Uh, when I was a little kid, I used to do a lot of plane travel. Um, I lived in the UK. I used to travel out to Australia for holiday almost every year. And I loved traveling on the plane. It was like my favorite thing each year, getting on the plane to, to fly to Australia. Uh, everything about it was just so fun, like the, the packing your clothes in a bag, the getting to the airport, like the waiting in line. I love that too. When you get on the plane and, and the, the air hostesses and things treat you really nicely because you're a cute little kid and this is a novelty for you. You get those special colouring in books. You get those eye masks to help you to sleep. I love the smell of airplanes. I love the noise, the hum as you're flying through the air. Like It was a huge novelty to me. I loved airplanes, everything about it, until... I got old enough to realize that when I got onto the plane, you know when you, you walk through that little tunnel and you hand your boarding pass to the steward or the stewardess or whatever, and they tell you which seat to take, and they point down there, they say, to the right, sir, and off you go, down to, to your seat down in row 57F. I realized not everyone turns right. Have you noticed that? 
Some people hand their ticket to the stewardess and they turn left. They go past a curtain. What's going on there? So there I was, sitting in my chair, and I'd lean out and look down the aisle at that mysterious curtain down, down the front end of the plane there, and I would wonder, what mysteries lie beyond that curtain? They call it first class. That sounds pretty good. What do they do in first class? They peel your grapes for you? They fan you with palm fronds? I think I want some of that. Suddenly, my experience of economy air travel doesn't seem so fantastic anymore. I want the upgrade. One time in my life, one time only, I was given that upgrade uh, on a flight where they had some spare seats in business class. Not quite as good as first class, but they had some empty seats. They offered me one. I said, thank you very much. Uh, sadly, my experience in business class uh, it was on the shortest flight I've ever been on in my life. It was 40 minutes long. But let me tell you, they were 40 of the best minutes of my life right there. <laughs> Because, man, the legroom, the service that you get from people in business class, best of all, the smug feeling of superiority I got to have over all those plebs back in cattle class, man, it was good. Do you know, if there is an upgrade available, if there is a better experience, we want it, don't we? You'd be crazy not to. We want the upgrades if they're there. And I reckon we have that attitude in our Christian life. We want the best version possible, yeah? And friends, do you know that there are plenty of people plenty of people in this world who will tell you that there are upgrades for you in your Christian life and that they can offer them to you. And look what Paul does in verse 18 of this passage. He is going to show us three examples of the upgrades that the Colossians are being offered. Let's have a look. Verse 18, he says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility, there's the first one, and the worship of angels, that's the second one, disqualify you. Such a person also goes into detail about what they have seen. That's the third one, three upgrades. Let's think about them in turn. The first one there, false humility. Uh, that is a word that um, in some of your Bibles, it gets translated as asceticism. An ascetic person, it's a big word, an ascetic person is somebody who denies themselves certain pleasures in life. They won't eat nice food. They won't enjoy comforts because they think that's the path to spiritual maturity. Uh, they are the, an ascetic person is the kind of person who thinks that everything good is bad. <laughs> Do you know those kind of people? I'm not going to eat the cheesecake, I'll eat the bread and the water because that will make God more happy. I'm not going to live in a nice house, I'm going to live in a hut and sleep on the floor because then God will know that heaven is my home and not this earth. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not going to rest in the forgiveness of Jesus even. Now that would be too easy for me to just rest in the forgiveness that Jesus offers me. I'm going to show God just how serious I am about my sin and I'm going to beat myself up about it, emotionally. Maybe even physically, I will deny myself to the point that it hurts me because I want God to know how serious of a Christian I am. That's the ascetic kind of mindset. And the ascetic person, they make that kind of self-denial the key to the Christian life. You know, If you ever meet this kind of a person, they will be happy to remind you when you meet them just all the things that they're giving up that you are selfishly still indulging in. You come away from meeting an ascetic person, you think, man, maybe I'm really not as keen of a Christian as I thought I was because that person seems to be taking it far more seriously. They are happy to make us feel inferior. And in fact, that's their intended uh, outcome. They want you to, to realize that they are a better Christian than you that you are just a second-class Christian. That's the first upgrade Paul warns about. The second one, the worship of angels. Uh, now, that's an interesting little phrase, worship of angels. What does that mean? It could mean a couple of different things. Uh, it might be a claim to be kind of worshipping with the angels in heaven. 
You know, that kind of language of, oh, wow, you've got to come to our church service, man, the worship there. So it's like entering into the throne room of heaven, that kind of idea. There is, um, there's a prominent church in the United States that a few years ago, um, they announced that God himself had shown up in their worship services in the form of a glory cloud. Do you know what a glory cloud is? Back in the Old Testament, it was the way that God used to manifest his presence amongst his people in the temple, in the tabernacle, this, this cloud that somehow reflected the glory of God would show up. This church in the US, a few years ago now, said, well, that's happening at our church. And they filmed it. And you can go on YouTube and you can watch the glory cloud appear in these people's church. And uh, you can make up your own mind about what's going on there. Personally, to me, it looks like somebody poured glitter in the air conditioning. I'm not convinced. But that's kind of the idea. Hey, you come to our church, you come to, to this thing that we're going to put on, we're going to give you an experience of worship, heavenly worship, that you've never experienced before. Maybe that's what worship of angels means. The other option, and the one that I actually think might be the case, is that the worship of angels actually refers to worshipping angels, worshipping those heavenly beings themselves. And, and Paul would be, he'd, it'd be quite provocative of him to say that because the Colossians would know that you're not to do that. You do not worship any created thing. You only worship the creator. They realize that. They're Christians. But you see, there's, there's kind of a fine line, isn't there? You can imagine if somebody came along to you and said, well, there are these heavenly beings out there. They've got power. And so if we could just kind of tap into them, get on their good side, well, then they could probably help us a bit. They, they could help us overcome sin. They could give us power. They could you know, help us have a better Christian experience. And before you know it, if if that's the the sort of mindset you buy into, then you start to look down on anybody who doesn't also worship angels and explore that whole spiritual realm. Worship of angels, that's the second upgrade some people were being offered in Colossae. The third one, some people going into detail about what they've seen, uh, spiritual visions, that's the third upgrade. You ever had somebody say, oh man, Let me tell you what I saw. Come to our church, we see the most amazing things. God revealing himself to us. Oh, you've never had a vision? Oh, poor you. How do you keep going in the Christian life? How sad that must be for you. And you hear what other people have seen and experienced, how God showed up to them personally. And if you've never had that experience yourself, well, then the implication is clear, isn't it? You're an inferior Christian. So what are we supposed to make of all this? these three kind of upgrades that were being offered. How are we supposed to respond as we get intimidated by people's self-denial and their worship and their visions? You know, is our FOMO justified at this point? Are they experiencing something that we are missing out on? How should we respond when we feel second class? We, we think that we're boarding the airplane and turning right and some people are turning left. What should we do? Well, Paul's pretty clear here, isn't he? He wants them to be crystal clear about what's going on, in fact. And so he says at the end of verse 18, look there, he says that such a person who goes on and on about such things is puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. He's saying that if if meeting a Christian like that leaves you feeling a little bit down, well, that's exactly what they want because they are puffed up. They're, they're, They're full of themselves. And they're so proud about their special spiritual experiences. And Paul says, don't be deceived by that. Don't buy into it. Understand what's really going on. They don't have good cause for feeling superior. They've got idle notions. And it's not from God. It's from their own unspiritual mind causing them to feel that way. All that stuff that they go on about, 
it's not truly spiritual. That's what Paul's saying. And in verse 19, the next verse, Paul makes it clear that actually dabbling in that stuff has a disastrous result. Look what he says in verse 19. He says that these people have lost connection with the head. Now, we've, as we read through Colossians, we've, we've heard that language a bit, haven't we? Who is the head? It's Jesus. Who is the body? It's us, his people, inextricably connected. And, and we've seen that because we are connected to Christ, we have every spiritual blessing that there is to have in Christ. There's nothing that we lack because we are the body of the head, Jesus. And so Paul is saying, actually, Christian, look at your plane ticket again. Check your boarding pass. What, what, what seat are you sitting in? It's seat 1A. You have the premier spot in first class. You're not a second class Christian. There's no such thing as a second class Christian. You're in the best spot and there's nothing better than that. Now, I want to, I want to say here, as I say that, uh, probably some of you are thinking, well, it sure doesn't feel like that. <laughs> My Christian life doesn't feel particularly first class. It feels decidedly unspectacular sometimes. And I, I understand where you're coming from there. The Christian life does involve suffering and hardship and trials. It's not always going to feel like you're in first class and you've got people waiting on your every beck and call to provide you with every comfort that you want. That's not how the Christian life works. But objectively, it's true, you're a first class Christian if you are in Christ. And Paul is clear here that there is no other kind of Christian. So, if you go looking for some extra experience then actually what you're going to find is that there is nothing extra that you can add into your Christian life because the only place to go if you want to get something extra is to go away from Jesus. You actually lose contact with your head. That's a a freaky kind of a metaphor, isn't it? You lose contact with your head. Just dwell on that for a minute. Paul's saying if you insist on that lie, if you chase that experience, that, that upgrade, well, then actually you're in the process of decapitating yourself. You know, I'm told that chickens can survive for a few minutes with their heads cut off. They can still run around. Probably can't lay any eggs or anything. But that is, understand, that's not true of Christians. If you cut yourself off from your head, you're doomed. That's the end of you. So Paul pleads passionately there in verse 18, doesn't he? He says, don't let anyone disqualify you. Don't do it, friends. Let no one persuade you that you're a second-class Christian, that you haven't got it all in Christ. You know, if, if anyone ever comes to you and says, yes, 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 you follow Jesus, you love Jesus, that's great, that's good. But do you have this extra thing? I could give you this extra thing. Come to my church and, and you'll experience that. What should you do at that moment? Respectfully, you should stop listening to that person. You should tell them, no, thank you. I have fullness in Christ. You probably tell them to come and read Colossians because they don't know what they're talking about. Now, look, if you think this is all just hypothetical and you think that this is, this is never going to happen to you, you're never going to be offered an upgrade in the Christian life, this is all just you know, theology, can I, can I point out to you some, some actual theology, some real church practice that is happening out there right on our doorstep? You may not know about it. Uh, if you're familiar with um, the Pentecostal movement from the early 1900s, the charismatic movement since about 1960, those two religious Christian movements have brought with it a, a greater emphasis on visions and ecstatic experiences and on links to the worship of heaven. Well, most Pentecostal churches will teach that while it's true that all Christians have the Holy Spirit, 
Well, there's actually this kind of second stage that some Christians can enter into called the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that leads you to closer fellowship with the Holy Spirit and that empowers you for Christian service, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that baptism usually happens through an experience and that experience is speaking in tongues. And so they will say, well, if you haven't had that, well, then you don't have power for Christian service. You don't have close fellowship with the Holy Spirit. You won't grow in your Christian life. Friends, do you see how close that comes to disqualifying somebody who has not experienced that? That's a dangerous kind of a prospect, isn't it? Now, look, I, please, please do not hear me disparaging the charismatic and the Pentecostal movement. Uh, I'm not saying anything negative about visions or, or speaking in tongues or anything. That's a different issue. What I'm saying here is that anyone who tells you that you must experience this as a Christian or else you don't have the full package, that person is trying to disqualify you. And Paul says here that that is a dangerous thing to do. Because the reality is that that person thinks Jesus is not everything. Yeah, you've got Jesus, but there's more that you could have. So friends, don't go looking for an upgrade to the Christian life. Because you won't find one, you don't need one, and all that will happen is that you will decapitate yourself. So there's the two, da two dangers so far. Lingering in the shadows, looking for an upgrade. Third, final danger is there for us from verse 20 through to the end of the passage, and it's the danger of living by the rules. The danger of living by the rules. And it seems like that danger was something that the Colossians had actually already fallen into. See what Paul says there in verse 20? He says, why, as though you still belonged to the world, do you submit to its rules? Why are you doing this, Colossians? Why are you still living by the rules? And just to be clear, Paul is not talking about God's rules here, the commands of God in the Bible. Paul's not referring to those things. Those things are good. They are for our good, for our protection. Paul is talking about the kind of rules that, that people inevitably build on top of God's rules, the extra rules, extra biblical rules. That's the issue here. And at verse 21, it kind of gives us some of those examples, doesn't it? It's that ascetic stuff again. Don't eat, don't drink, don't touch that. And he says, verse 23, that those kind of self-made ascetic rules, they are aiming to restrain sensual indulgence. Now, that's it. verse 23 is a very difficult verse to translate. But I think the sense of it is that it's talking about kind of human rules, practical rules that are designed to limit what you do with your body to stop you literally from sinning, to stop the indulgence of your flesh so that you can have self-control. Those are the kinds of rules. And, and to be honest, like, can you see the appeal of having a whole bunch of those rules? <laughs> I sure can. Because every single one of us here should, if we're honest with ourselves, should be able to say that we recognise how deeply depraved our hearts are. Every human being knows that. There's a problem in here. That, that we are broken and we need fixing. We understand that. And so it can be very tempting, I think, to just have this mindset of, okay, tell me what I need to do and I will do it. Give me a checklist, do's and don'ts, and that'll be how I'll live my life and then I'll be fixed. I'll be clean. I'll be straightened up and I'll be living the life that I need to live. It can be very tempting to just import some of those kind of religious man-made rules. Do you know those kind of rules? Those kind of rules where somebody will say to you, you know, you must only listen to Pulse 94.1. If you listen to any of that secular music, you're going to be poisoned by all those heathens. You know those kinds of rules? 
the kind of rules, somebody said this to me when I was a young man. They said, you've got to take a cold shower every day. Don't have hot showers, have cold showers. That will protect you against lust. You ever had somebody kind of give you that advice? The kind of rule that says, uh, certainly don't, don't drink any alcohol. Don't even have a sip of alcohol. In fact, it would be safer for you if you don't even look at alcohol, don't even think about alcohol, don't even go near alcohol. It's a man-made rule. FYI, that's not in the Bible. It's a kind of rule that says, you know, if, if you're a serious Christian, the only way to do it is to get up out of bed at 5 a.m. and to read your Bible for an hour. And if you don't do that, then your love for God is going to grow cold. You ever had those kind of rules proposed to you as the pathway to full Christian life? The biblical word for that way of thinking is legalism. Legalism. And it's very tempting because it seems like a simple solution. You know, I just do this or don't do that. Well, then I'll be able to clean myself up. I'll be the person that I want to be. The problem, though, is that it assumes that we have the power to change ourselves. It assumes that the, the power to be the person I want to be just lies within and I'll just muster my moral forces to go and do that. And you see, the, 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 the real problem at the root of legalism is that it gives you a false confidence. That's the real problem. You know, if you manage to tick all those religious boxes, you keep all those rules for a day, you're going to feel pretty good about yourself. And chances are you're going to feel so good about yourself that you start to look down on other people. And you think, man, I am a better Christian than those people. Look at me. Good for me. And so now what's happened is instead of relying just on the death and resurrection of Jesus for, for your good standing, your right standing with God, now you're relying on that plus your rule keeping. And that is a terribly foolish thing to do. And Paul's response to that kind of way of thinking uh, is, is to point out how man-made, how self-imposed those rules are. Verse 23 says they're, they're not from God. Verse 22, these, these rules all come from human commands and teachings. And at the end of the day, those rules don't even work. They, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The problem with rules is that they cannot change us. Yeah, you know, The problem of our sin is too big of a problem. Sin is too ingrained in our lives. Our flesh is too stubborn. You know, anybody who's ever tried to start a swear jar, you know, to try and curtail your bad language, you'll realize that this is the case. Rules can't help you there. Sure, your wallet might get lighter over time, but your heart is going to remain unchanged. And it's exactly the same with all man-made rules. They will do you no good. All our efforts are futile when it comes to rule keeping. You know why? Because rule keeping doesn't go far enough to deal with the problem. It's too small of a solution. You know, if, you, if you've realized how serious your own sin is, how desperately broken and wicked is your heart, then you will realize that the only solution to that kind of a problem is that you need to die. You need that self, that person that you are, to die. That person needs to go in the dustbin. You need to be a new person. You need a new heart. You need to be changed from the outside in. That is what you need, surely, if you understand just how desperately broken you are. And do you know what, friends? Here's the good news tonight. That is exactly what has happened to you if you are in Christ. Christ has made you a new person. See what Paul says there in verse 20? He says, remember that you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. And that's what he said earlier. We saw it last week, earlier in chapter 2. He says that Jesus' death was your death. Jesus' resurrection was your resurrection. Your old self has died, so you don't need rule-keeping anymore. Why would you go back and try and keep rules as if 
that was what you were trying to do, clean up your old self. No, 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 that person's dead. There's no need to try and add some rule-keeping to it. It's not going to help. It won't achieve anything that Christ hasn't already set you free from. And Paul is going to go on from this point, as we're going to see over the next few weeks, from chapter 3 onwards. He's going to detail how that works, how change and growth in the Christian life takes place, how we actually fight sin. But before he does that, to, to put the full stop on this argument, he wants to be very clear that self-made rules are not the answer to our problems. The answer is looking to Christ, looking to what Christ has already done for you and what you have in him. So those are the three dangers, the three dangers that Paul wants to expose, lingering in the shadows, looking for an upgrade, living by the rules. You see that none of those things are going to give us what we're longing for, you see, we've got to realize, actually, that, that our FOMO is unjustified. There is nothing that we are missing out on in the Christian life. There's no better version because we are first-class Christians. We have everything in the Christian life because Jesus is everything. So what ought we to do? We just ought to stick with Jesus. Stand firm with him. Why would you go anywhere else? That's what Paul said earlier in chapter 2, verse 6 to 7. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue to live your lives in him. Stick with Jesus. Don't go anywhere else. There's a story of an Irish monk from the 6th century. Uh, There's a guy by the name of Columba, a very famous uh, monk, who took the gospel from Ireland to Scotland, first person to go there. And he went there with the intention of trying to convert uh, a pagan tribe in Scotland. He went with 12 other guys from his monastery in Ireland. And uh, he, he did some amazing things. He set up an abbey in Scotland that became very influential for the spread of the gospel to the whole of the UK. But the story goes that as Columba sailed to Scotland, and as he arrived on the shore in this little wicker boat that was kind of wrapped in animal hides, Columba did something very drastic. He pulled up on the shore, he set fire to his boat. <laughs> because he knew that what lay ahead of him was going to be hard. <laughs> he was going to be tempted to go elsewhere, to retreat, to go back to his easy life, to go looking for comfort elsewhere. And so Columba did the sensible thing. <laughs> he cut off that option. He burnt his boat so that he would stay put in Scotland, and he did. Can I say to you, friends, what we need to do is we need to burn our boats. We need to realize that there is no moving on from Jesus. There is no moving up from Jesus. There is only moving away from Jesus. And so, can I say, friends, if you have Jesus tonight, if you have your faith in him, then you have everything you need. You are not missing out on anything in the Christian life. So stand firm and burn your boats. Let me pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much that Jesus is everything for us, that there is nothing else we need for this Christian life other than him. And yet, God, we confess that uh, too often we don't appreciate all that we have in Christ and we think that there will be something better out there, something that we could add on. God, please forgive us for that foolishness. Please forgive us for the offense that it is to think that Jesus is not everything. Lord, would you please help us to see the immense privilege we have of having every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
Help us to recognize those dangers for what they are and to realize that we just need to stand firm in Jesus and not move. We ask for his sake and in his name. Amen.